Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to John chapter 18. Once again, back in John 18. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read from... Oh, let's go from 33 to the end of the chapter. We'll be focused, though, on 37 to the end. This is the Word of the Lord. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Do you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover? Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So we return again to our Savior, Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, standing before this puny man, Pontius Pilate, inside the praetorium where he resided. And Jesus, you remember, has just assured Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not of here. Even still, Jesus is a king, right? And Jesus has a kingdom. He is a king and he has a kingdom. And certainly, you know, that, that concerns Pilate. He's, he, uh, he's a Roman governor and uh, he does not take kindly to rivals. We understand that. His, his duty is to keep the peace. And so he doesn't, he doesn't take uh, rivals kindly. Pilate hears Jesus talk of his kingdom and um, where it is from and responds as we would, so you, so you are a king, right? He's like, okay, kings have kingdoms. You're talking about your kingdom. You say you're a king. You're a king, so you are a king. And notice here he does not say king of the Jews, as he had said earlier and as he says later. This question is now like, it's broader and implies that he wants to know 
what kind of king he is if, if indeed his kingdom is not of this world. You know, what does that mean? What, what? And so he just says, so you are a king. He's kind of asking what kind of king by not mentioning the Jews now. Um, and so I think he's prompting Jesus to elaborate. He's just prompting to elaborate on what he means on the statements that we went through last time. Jesus tells Pilate then three characteristics of his kingdom. First, he is king and he was born into this kingship. He received this by birth. He is not a revolutionary, right? He has not usurped the, the, the throne of somebody else. He, he, this is rightfully his. He was born into this kingship. He is simply holding the position that is rightfully his. So that's the first thing he says. Second, the purpose of his kingship is to testify to the truth. That's the purpose. Other kingdoms have different aspirations, don't they? I'm not sure on this July 4th weekend that we would say that the aspiration of the United States is to spread truth around the world. That is the aspiration of the, king, the, the kingdom of Christ. It's to testify to the truth. Other kingdoms have aspirations of gaining lands, of gaining wealth, of gaining political power, of, of keeping a political peace, of balancing this and that economic and, and political and military power. But Jesus' kingdom is about propagating the truth. That's its purpose. That's the mission statement. Third, he says, he now defines who's in the kingdom. The citizens of the kingdom are those who listen to the truth that comes from his mouth or by his voice. Those are the ones that are in that kingdom, those who listen to King Jesus. And so, you know, the mind begins to, to boggle. The new birth. Uh, with its corresponding opening of the mind and heart to God and His truth, is how one is born into the kingdom of Christ. The kingdoms of the world may grant citizenship. Right, Claudio? Claudio just got his citizenship, what, two days ago? Tuesday. American citizenship, two days ago. And so the kingdoms of the world, the nations of the world may grant citizenship if, if you're born within their territory or by some connection, um, but, but, uh, but this kingdom of Christ has citizens that correspond to the truth, not to the land. They correspond to the truth. They correspond to Jesus as the truth speaker. Not to land, not to any, anything other than that. So the kingdom of Jesus Christ is spiritual. It's not of this world. It's ruled by a king born into the position, the incarnation of the Son. Its constitution, so to speak, is the truth, the truth of the word. Jesus is the truth. And its citizens are those who embrace the truth as spoken by Jesus Christ, their king, or even as embodied in Jesus Christ. 
you know, the truth that he embodies. So he is a king and he was born into this kingdom. If Pilate had known the writing of the prophet Isaiah, he might have thought of this passage when Jesus was speaking, right? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? 30 years or so earlier, this prophecy had been fulfilled. And the miracles Jesus had performed, especially recently, testified that he, he was the power of God. Earthly kings may, may, you know, they may rightfully occupy their throne because they are of a royal line. But Jesus occupies his throne because he is God. He is God. He was God among us, right? God with us. He has all authority by virtue of his very being. He is not like, you know, he, he's not a king like the kings of the earth. He is a transcendent king. Therefore, he is called what? The king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, right? There certainly is power in earthly kings. God gives them a certain amount of power, but the power of God proceeds, you know, um, it proceeds in time and surpasses in power all the kingdoms of this world. So what does Jesus mean when he speaks of the, the truth in his answer? The truth. We've already said that accepting the truth of Christ is what makes one a citizen of Christ's kingdom. I still think at this point in the interview, Jesus is giving Pilate assurances that his intent is not analogous to Rome's aspirations. He, as Ryle puts it, did not come to gather armies, build cities, amass treasure, and found a dynasty as Pilate perhaps fancied. And that's, I think Jesus is still telling him, look, that's not at all what I'm talking about here. He came to establish the truth of salvation in him. He came to show man what he was, a rebel against God. Not a rebel against Rome or any earthly power, but he came to tell man, you're a rebel against God. And he came to die, right, for those rebels who were headed to hell, who would have that king judge them. And any man who hears and believes that truth, who believes and confesses that Jesus is Lord and that he rose from the dead, belongs to God's country, to God's household, to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The citizens of this kingdom may come from each and every lesser um, earthly kingdom or nation, right? The, the people from every tongue, tribe, and nation become the citizens of this kingdom. The kingdom of Christ transcends. It's bigger than any earthly kingdom. Those who are part of that kingdom do not take an oath to uphold some paper constitution. Right? Those who are part of Christ's kingdom don't take an oath to uphold a paper constitution. They swear allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
their Lord and Savior, even if it costs them their citizenship, their property, their country, their family, and every single bit of comfort they've ever had. Their allegiance is with Jesus Christ, come what may. So the truth that Jesus is speaking about here is the fundamental truth that there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else, and that is what he came to call the nations to. There is only one king that can lead a charge against death. And death is an enemy worse than Nazis or plagues or poverty. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's the truth. An earthly king may establish order and bring some temp- you know, temporary relief to you and me, but there is no earthly king that can bring us before God into heaven, into the country where there is an eternal Sabbath peace and rest. And Jesus came to announce and establish and enact and lead people to that country as its king. Now remember that the crime Pilate is investigating is that Christ had claimed to be a king. He has now clarified, Jesus has now clarified just exactly what he meant whether Pilate understands it or not. I think given the question he asked in response to Jesus' explanation proves very clearly he did not. Right? It is often said that Pilate was asking the question, what is truth? Out of some sort of philosophical curiosity, philosophical inquiry. Um, I think it's simpler than that and... and um, and certainly more contextual. Uh, Jesus has just said that he came into the world to testify to the truth, and that everyone who is of the truth hears his voice. In other words, he's spoken the truth, and the citizens of his kingdom have heard him and believed. And so I think along with Calvin that Pilate's question, what is truth, is simply an expression of disdain. It's like, what is truth? He's... he, he, he hadn't listened to Jesus, and so he reads between the lines and concludes that Jesus is saying that he, Jesus is saying to him that he doesn't know what the truth is. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He has the truth, and that um, he has his truth, right? You know how people talk like that? They talk not about the truth, but they talk about my truth. (laughs) Well, I think Pilate's got his truth. He has his truth, and that's good enough for him. I think when he says, what is truth, he's shrugging his shoulders. He's whispering almost to himself, what is truth? And he's just, and notice that, uh, well, like, like every unbeliever devoid of the truth, He considers the word of Jesus to be the ramblings of a delusional man. But in fact, if it were a genuine question, Pilate would have waited for an answer. That's exactly what he does not do. 
right? It's like, what is truth? And he's already turning away from Jesus and out and going back to the the Jews. He would have waited for an answer. He immediately leaves. Look at the text. And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. That's what it says. And when he had said this, he went out to the Jews. He's not curious. He's not seeking for an answer. He is not interested. He is not persuaded. He only has his own understanding and not an understanding that requires the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Right? Think of it, though. The embodiment of, the, of truth. God himself. The God of truth. Right? The embodiment of truth stands before Pilate speaking to him. And after hearing Jesus, he just rolls his eyes. What is truth? The embodiment of truth, God of truth, is standing before him and he's rolling his eyes. Softly mouthing a question out of his annoyance at this whole affair. He just wants this to be done. The scribes and the chief priests had their truth about Jesus, didn't they? People have their truth about Jesus. Jesus speaks about testifying to the truth. Pilate has his view of the whole situation. And like an exasperated judge who is dealing with the, you know, the 14th traffic violation of the day, he dismisses the Son of God from, turns from him and is cynical and dismissive in his face. In light of Pilate's attitude, Calvin makes this observation in his commentary on this passage. He says, truth is believed to be a common thing, but God declares on the contrary that it far exceeds the capacity of human understanding. Few make progress in the school of God because we scarcely find one person in ten who attends to the first and elementary instructions. And why is this but that they measure secret wisdom of God by their own understanding? In other words, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again or you won't understand the truth. You will have no interest in the truth. You must be born again. And it is only the born again who truly understand that Jesus is king of this eternal spiritual kingdom. And so Pilate now leaves. He he turns in disdain, I think, and turns and leaves and goes out to speak to the Jewish crowds. and, And Pilate is a pragmatist and he's thought of a quick solution, maybe. He knows he's caught between a rock and a hard place. If he goes out and announces that Jesus is a guilty revolutionary, he's lying. He knows it's a lie. Right? If he goes out and announces that Jesus is innocent, the Jews will get rowdy. So he goes out and announces that he finds no guilt in Christ. But, he says, before they get rowdy, but he says, you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover, right? He's like, ha-ha, I've got a solution for this. Then he asks them, do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? 
Probably not the greatest phrasing of that. Somewhat provocative. I mean, he, he is at one in the time wanting to get out of this, and he's similarly lacking wisdom in provoking the Jews by calling Jesus the king of the Jews. But, but more than anything, what, is, what does Pilate want? He just wants to be out from under the responsibility of this. He just doesn't want responsibility for, for anything that's going on here. We've talked about that. This is, this is one of the greatest, uh, this is perhaps the greatest example in history of political cowardice. I mean, perhaps he's, he's even riling them up because he knows what they will do. They will, they will then take responsibility for Christ's crucifixion. In fact, that is their response. So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Little detail John throws in there. Now, the words of Pilate carry a weight he did not understand, right? Jesus, as the unblemished Lamb of God, had absolutely no guilt, no sin, no rebellion. He had lived sinlessly and therefore was a perfect sacrifice. And so Pilate, not knowing this, says, I find no guilt in him. And he's essentially announcing to the world that there is no sin in this man, right? He simply doesn't know what he's saying. He, he merely means that, Caesar is not threatened by this man and his claims. But on the other hand, he's making a profound statement about Christ's person, in fact, about the kind of sacrifice that was about to take place. So then, with some relief, Pilate remembers the custom of the people during Passover. He would uh, use this to weasel his way out of responsibility for Christ's judicial murder. He's going to place the decision squarely on the shoulders of the people, right? Even though in declaring no guilt in Christ, he should have freed him. He should have freed him. In fact, perhaps he hoped they would call for Christ's release and he'd be free of the responsibility entirely and his realm would be at rest. But the pragmatism of Pilate is the most notorious example of this expediency. That we have. It makes the practice of the slaughter of babies in the womb by modern nations pale in comparison. Just nothing. Pilots in action led to the murder of the Son of God. Of course, in one sense, that is how we view it, Pilate's sin. In another sense, it was the predetermined plan of God for the redemption of mankind. But Pilate gets no credit for that. He gets credit for the sin and the cowardice. The glory is God and the sin is Pilate's. The good that came from it is due to God's predetermination. The sin of it is still laid to Pilate's account. Ultimately, Pilate, again, wants to get out of responsibility and keep the Jews happy. Perhaps he underestimated the zeal of the Jews to see Jesus Christ die. Perhaps in saying king of the Jews, he thought he would placate them instead of incense them, instead of calling for the release of Jesus as he might have hoped. 
the Jews call for the lease of Barabbas. A robber, who we know from the Gospel of Luke, was also a murderer. Some talk of him actually being an insurrectionist. They'd risk their possessions and their lives for this robber and murderer if it meant getting rid of this man who claimed to be the Messiah. Right? They'd risk imminent danger if it meant getting rid of this man who had healed them and fed them and taught them about God's mercy and showed them kindness and forgiveness. They'd let a man go who had no love for them if it meant the end of this God of love. That's the decision they're making here. The Jews. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Later when he preached Christ in this same city, when the apostles come preach Christ in Jerusalem, in Acts 3, the apostle Peter says this, listen to this, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Now, I want you, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in a weird direction here. Stick with me. But I want you to think about this. Stop and think about this. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah promised through the ages. He is born in the world. He takes on human flesh. He comes down to his people, the people he had guided through the wilderness, the people he had uh, sent his prophets to warn and a call to, to repentance. And they disowned him and asked for a murderer to be released and put Jesus to death. Okay, so you, f- you feel the intensity of that. You feel the craziness of that. Now, doesn't it seem strange that the Apostle Peter would mention this when he is doing the work of evangelism in Jerusalem? He goes back to Jerusalem, he's preaching the gospel, and he's like leading off with the fact that you killed Christ, you murderers. That's what he did. He could have appealed to them to believe in Jesus without blaming them as a whole for the killing of Jesus. In fact, this is what we try to do with evangelism. Right? We attempt to call people to Christ without first convincing them of their sin or sinfulness. Right? In fact, it's worse than that. We attempt to call people to Christ while studiously avoiding mention of their sin. That's the last place we want to go. And dear brothers and sisters, that is impossible. Calvin, reflecting on Peter's rebuke to the Jews in Acts 3, says this, Listen to what he says. Peter mingles with doctrine a most sharp chiding as the matter required. For it was impossible to bring them truly unto God unless they were first brought to the knowledge of their sins. 
Neither does he only lightly touch them, but he shows, he doth very gravely show them the horribleness of that offense which they had committed. Men must be so stricken that being brought to know their guiltiness, they may earnestly fly to the remedy of pardon. This is so, this is so common today in our approach to evangelism that we just, we just don't recognize it. This week in the hermeneutics class at New Geneva Academy, we were discussing the last 30 years of English Bible translations. Now, it, it, this applies. I'll get there. English Bible translations. Do you know that one of the recurring themes expressed by translation committees is that they need to update English translations because the original ancient texts is offensive to modern sensibilities. Here's how it's expressed in the introduction to a gender-neutral translation of the NIV. This was produced in the UK in 1995. And then Zondervan wanted to do it in America, and World Magazine blew up the story, and it didn't happen for 10 years. So they held them off for about 10 years. But in the UK, they, they got the NIVI. But listen to the intro. Soon after its first appearance in 1978, the New International Version, which, let me also say, in the 70s, everybody used the NIV. 70s and 80s used the NIV. I used the NIV early in my Christian life. I mean, it was everywhere, okay? Now, we didn't understand its translation philosophy and dynamic equivalence, and, um, and that was a loss. But um, listen, soon after its first appearance in 1978, the... New International Version established its place among the leading translations of the Bible. It received wide acceptance in the English-speaking world as a Bible suitable for both church and private use. No living language ever stands still, however, and the English language is particularly in continuous and continuously subject to influences and developments worldwide. Even though a comparatively short time has elapsed since the New International Version was first produced, it is already clear that it needs to be brought up to date in certain areas. And so the Committee on Bible Translation have therefore given themselves to the task of continuing to keep this translation available in contemporary English while remaining faithful to its established text. A major challenge facing the committee is how to respond to the significant changes that are taking place within the English language in regard to gender issues, right? That's no surprise. The word man, for example, is now widely understood to refer only to males, even though it, that is often not the intention of the corresponding Greek or Hebrew words. Instances of potential confusion abound, as in instructions about preparing the Lord's Supper, a man ought to examine himself or in pronouncements of beatitudes, such as in Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man. In these and other passages, it has become increasingly necessary to have a translation that makes it clear that women and men are both included. Recognizing this need, the CBT made a decision in 1992 that the NIV should be made available in an inclusive language edition. 
Many of these issues are of a sensitive nature. So to guide its inclusive language revision, the committee adopted a set of principles. The first principle was to retain the gender used in the original languages when referring to God, angels, and demons. Okay, they're not going to mess with those words, right? Those are going to, God's still going to be father. And, and at the same time, they say, it was recognized that was often appropriate to mute the patriarchalism of the culture of the biblical writers through gender-inclusive language when this could be done without compromising the message of the Spirit. Does that bother you? They want to mute the patriarchalism of the text. The text. Right? They're hedge words all over the place. And right, They want to mute the patriarch. This involves distinguishing between those passages in which an activity was normally carried out by either males or females and other cases where the gender of the people concerned was less precisely identified. While in the cases of the former, the text could be left unaltered. In the case of the latter, words like workman could be changed to worker or craftsman to skilled worker, etc., etc. And then they get into pronouns. There's a difficulty with masculine pronouns because, you know, it's exclusive. It, it leaves out uh, women. And then, then there are words like maid or girl, which they found offensive and pejorative. And so they replace those with, with, with other words. And, and, um, and on and on it goes. I could read the, the whole thing, but I won't. Now, why bring all of this up when our passage is focused on the trial of Christ before Pilate? Well, I was making an application about how we are prone to clean things up and make Christ more palatable to people rather than bringing them to a conviction of their sin. The apostles did not shy away from mentioning to the Jews that they chose Barabbas instead of Jesus. They used this as their evangelistic method. You chose a murderer over Jesus. That is the central sin of the Jewish people. The Messiah came, they rejected him, yet again the apostles did not shy away from using that to bring the Jews to repentance in Jerusalem. We would not be inclined to do that, would we? So inclined are we not to do that, that our modern Bible translators are willing to change the text of Scripture so that we won't be offended by Scripture. Do you see what they're doing? But if you remove the offense of Scripture, guess what you are removing from the evangelistic venture? You are removing the conviction of sin. You're removing repentance. And so rather than inspired, God-breathed Scripture being profitable for reproof, for correction, for teaching, for training in righteousness, we bend it so that it's rather profitable for affirming what you already know, for upbuilding, for coddling, for training in permissiveness. It's what we do. But we change the very word of God to do it, right? We, we are in the process, dear brothers and sisters, evangelicals are in the process of, of removing the offense of Scripture 
and essentially declaring to the world that a man does not need to be convicted of his sin in order to come to Christ. And we look at the technique of the apostles calling out the killing of Jesus and we we think we can do better than the apostles, even to the point where we'll we'll mess with the, the words of Scripture. We simply do not believe, I think, that repentance is a necessary step in coming to Christ. And perhaps that's why we have a generation of very weak nominal Christians in the church today never repented. They've never known they needed to repent. Jesus has just been to them a guru who, who, who whispers interesting universal truths to them. Bonhoeffer lamented the cheap grace of his day nearly a hundred years ago. It, it has only gotten worse since then, but cheap grace, he said, was the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. I would now add that cheap grace is the changing of God's word to remove its offense. That's cheap grace. We have a generation of Christians that think of Christ as an addendum to their life, something that gives them something spiritual to do on occasion because they have never been told how bad they are and never been told, therefore, how costly the grace of God was in the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. So, let us not shy away from the gruesome example of the Jews calling for Barabbas and shouting for Jesus to be crucified. It is sin of such a magnitude that it is hard to describe. But let, you know, lest we give ourselves a pass, we have to see just how willing we are to avoid repentance, avoid conviction, avoid our sin. We want positive life coaching sessions from the pulpit. We want Bible translations that remove the offensive parts, especially anything having to do with God's creation order of man first, then woman. We want counseling sessions that only affirm us. We want presbyteries that don't discipline their ministers, right? We want evangelism that doesn't involve confrontation, right? We want forgiveness without repentance. That's what we want. That's what we want. And so we need to lodge in our brains how the apostles used the sin of crying out for the crucifixion in their evangelism. And trust that the Holy Spirit will regenerate our neighbors in the same way he regenerated the Apostle Paul. They will be convicted of their sin and long for a Savior. Without conviction, they will never ever long for anything. Certainly not salvation. And so without conviction, they will die, just they'll die happy and oblivious to their predicament. Right? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we we ask for your help. We want to remove 
all the offense of Scripture. We're, we're embarrassed. We confess before you that we are embarrassed at times about how, how clearly it speaks to certain issues. Uh, and Father, I, I pray that w- you would indeed grant us repentance for that sin. Father, if, if your word hadn't, if James 3 hadn't come into my life and convinced me I was a blasphemer, I probably wouldn't know Christ now. And so I'm very thankful, Father, for the, the way that your word cut me. But Father, I pray that, that you would give us wisdom in how we straightforwardly preach the law, preach for conviction, preach sin. And by your Holy Spirit, I pray that that would be received as you work on hearts, that that would be perceived as love. And, and Father, that it would lead to many crying out for forgiveness of sins, many seeing their predicament and finding Jesus Christ has died for them in their place as their substitute. And so help us in this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.